John chapter 21 this morning, Gospel of John chapter 21. As Bob mentioned, I just want to reaffirm in two weeks from today, we will begin study in the book of Galatians, Paul's letter to the churches in Galatia. And I'll just uh, piggyback on what he said. Uh, neat little journals that we have that are out by the front desk that you can pick up. We're asking for a small donation. Essentially what they do is give you the text of Galatians on one page and a blank page. So if you're one who likes to take notes and likes to um, sort of keep notes with the text, this is a great little volume to do that with. So we'll encourage you as we study along in Galatians starting in a couple of weeks. But this morning we are in John chapter 21 as we finish up our survey of the Gospel of John. As we saw last week and throughout the study, John has been very focused on what his purpose is in the writing of this gospel, what his intent is, and that is to urge his readers to believe. Believe first in the person of Jesus Christ, that Jesus is who he said he is, that he is indeed God in flesh, to believe that Jesus did what he said he would do, which was to die for sinners and to rise again, and then to believe that Jesus has the power to give everlasting life to all who believe. Chapter 21 now is the the epilogue to John's gospel. It is sort of tying up the loose ends. There's one particular storyline that needs to be finished up, and that has to do with Peter, and we'll see that as we walk through chapter 21. But there is also a great deal of wisdom in this chapter for you and I as believers in Jesus Christ about a subject that Jesus brings up in the latter part of his ministry, particularly on the night before his crucifixion, that he is really seeking to teach his disciples And that is on this topic of dependence, relying on him, in light of the fact that Jesus is about to go from them physically and not be walking with them through everyday life. Jesus is teaching them what it means to rely on him and depend on him. He begins that, if you remember back in chapter 15, with that picture of, I am the vine and you are the branches. And he draws that illustration to cause us to see that Our reliance on Jesus is no less equivalent to what a branch relies on the vine for sustenance. It needs life from that vine. If it's detached, it dies. And so he has used that to help us to see our need to depend on him. And in fact, he says in John 15, 5, whoever abides in me, rests in me, and I in him, it is he that bears much fruit. For apart from me, you can do nothing. We need Jesus Christ. We are lost without Jesus Christ. It's not simply a matter of eternal life and trusting in Jesus for salvation, but it is for this life, relying on him. And that's what he builds on throughout chapter 16 and 17, where he's discussing the giving of his spirit, the fact that he would send his spirit so that his spirit would would bring us his presence, so that Jesus would would still be in us through his spirit. So even though he's going away from them, he would ask the Father to send his spirit to be with them and in them. So on the night before his crucifixion, Jesus Christ prayed for that, for the coming of the spirit on all believers so they might dwell in him, so Christ might be present with us. We need Christ. And that's very clear here in John chapter 21. We're going to see that come out. The events of this chapter focus largely on one individual. Peter's sort of at the the, the focal point here. But as John recounts this appearance of Jesus, he describes it as the third appearance of Jesus to the disciples. What he also helps us see are some aspects of what it looks like 
as followers of Jesus Christ going forward, to depend on him. What that sort of dependence, reliance looks like. We're going to look at four particular ways. I want to read John 21. I'll read down through verse 11 just to get us started. After this, Jesus revealed himself again to the disciples by the Sea of Tiberias. And he revealed himself in this way. Simon Peter, Thomas called the twin, Nathaniel of Cana and Galilee, the sons of Zebedee, and two others of his disciples were together. Simon Peter said to them, I'm going fishing. They said to him, we will go with you. They went out, got into the boat, but that night they caught nothing. Just as day was breaking, Jesus stood on the shore, yet the disciples did not know that it was Jesus. Jesus said to them, children, do you have any fish? They answered him, no. He said to them, cast the net on the right side of the boat and you will find some. So they cast it and now they were not able to haul it in because of the quantity of fish. That disciple whom Jesus loved, therefore, said to Peter, It is the Lord. When Simon Peter heard that it was the Lord, he put on his outer garment, for he was stripped for work and threw himself into the sea. The other disciples came in the boat, dragging the net full of fish, for they were not far from the land, but about a hundred yards off. When they got out on land, they saw a charcoal fire in place with fish laid out on it and bread. Jesus said to them, Bring some of the fish that you have just caught. So Simon Peter went aboard and hauled the net ashore, full of large fish, 153 of them. And although there were so many, the net was not torn. Here's John sort of setting us up on this last scene. John gives time markers often. This is one of the less specific ones when he starts it by saying, after this, so in other words, after the, the two appearances of Jesus to the disciples, the one on what we would say is the Lord's Day on that day of resurrection, the one a week later, sometime after this, he appears to the disciples. We know that the disciples had been sent north to Galilee, that they were instructed to go there and to wait for Jesus. If you look on the map, I know you can't see the little names, but at the very bottom of the map is Jerusalem, and at the very top of the map is the Sea of Galilee. And so they have seen Jesus in Jerusalem. They have been sent to go to Galilee, back to what is the home region for most of them, and it is there that they are to await Jesus. While they're waiting, Peter decides that they are going to go fishing. This is probably part of just passing time and making a living. There's no clear reason given as to why. He just sees the need to go fishing. This is what their trade was. And so while they're waiting for Jesus, they go ahead and they go fishing. They apparently spent much of the night fishing on the Sea of Galilee. It's also referred to as the Sea of Tiberias. The town that's on the western edge of the Sea of Galilee is Tiberias. So it was both names were used, same, same sea that they are fishing on. And they fished and fished and they caught nothing. So daybreak comes and a man who is standing on the shore tells them, cast your net on the other side of the boat. Now, at, at first we may think, well, that, that must have seemed absurd to them that somebody would even say that. It wasn't totally out of the norm that, that fishermen on the Sea of Galilee would have spotters who would be up on a higher piece of land, who would look out and who would watch for movements beneath the surface. Typically, though, the direction is more like 100 yards over that way, there's something going on, so head over that way. Usually it's not, oh, just try the other side of the boat. Clearly there's something going on here, but there's no indication that they balk at him. They go ahead and they, they drop the net, and suddenly they have this massive haul of fish. Jesus, who told us, in John, I should say, who told us in chapter 20 that he was the first to believe. If you remember John, when he goes in the tomb and he sees the grave cloths, 
sees and believes that Jesus is risen, now appears to be the first to immediately recognize Jesus on the shore. It is John who who has the, the mental acuity. John thinks it first, but it is Peter, of course, who acts first. It is Peter who immediately grabs an outer garment and girds himself up so that he can swim and jumps in the water and heads for shore and leaves the other six to bring the boat and the hall in to land. This is the second time that Jesus has performed this miracle. The first record of it is in the course of calling the disciples, and Luke tells us about that in Luke chapter 5. If you remember, that was another scene where Jesus is watching them fish. They are having a completely unsuccessful time, and Peter and James and John, this was the moment when Jesus was calling them to be disciples, but first he watches them fish. He says to them after a fruitless effort, go ahead and put the net down one more time, and they sort of hesitate. We've fished all night. We haven't gotten anything, but they, they do. And then they bring up this this hall that the the nets are filled to the point of breaking. And if you remember that scene in Luke 5, Peter is just completely taken back at this moment. He realizes that the one who's just told them to drop the net is no ordinary man. That this guy who they've heard about his teaching and they know there's something unusual now appears to have the capacity to direct a lake's worth of fish over to this one spot to where they are, and Peter becomes undone. It it speaks of Peter just being aware in Luke 5 of his own sinfulness in the presence of Jesus. And Jesus' response to Peter and James and John in Luke 5.10 was, Do not be afraid. From now on you will be catching men. And they brought their haul in, and they began then to follow Jesus. Here's the first lesson from from John 21 on this issue of dependence, and it's the simplest, most basic one of all. We need Jesus' provision in everything. In everything, we need provision from Jesus. It's not a new lesson, but just like his disciples, you and I are prone to forget this from one moment to the next and suddenly become think, anyway, that we're becoming self-sufficient and rely on ourselves. Jesus said, apart from me... You can do nothing. Do we really believe that? We know that it says that in Scripture, but do we believe it? Here are these disciples, guys who made their living on the lake, guys who had plied this trade, understood the Sea of Galilee, understood its fish and and what to do, and here they are, kindly being reminded by Jesus once again that your food, your provision, your income ultimately comes from me, that ultimately you must depend on me, that I am still the one who provides for you. It's not that they needed Jesus to be sort of physically on the boat every time they went out to be the navigator, but it is this underlying message that all we have is from the kindness of God. It is his provision. Every good and perfect gift, as James 1 says it, comes down from the Father of lights, comes from the hand of a loving God. Solomon, who for all of of his riches and success in the eyes of the world, in Ecclesiastes 2, wrote, There is nothing better for a person than that he should eat and drink and find enjoyment in his toil. This also, I saw, is from the hand of God, for apart from him, who can eat or who can have enjoyment? Solomon went on in Ecclesiastes to say, To eat, to drink, to have a job, it is all a gift of God to man. It is a a reminder to us how dependent we are on him. 
whether you believe it or not, whether you are willing to acknowledge it or not, you live in God's creation. This world is his, and it is by his grace that we take breath. It is by the sustaining power of Jesus Christ, Colossians 1 says, that all of this is held together. And so we are fully dependent on him. Apart from me, you can do nothing. Even when we believe that, the question then is how, how convicted are we of that? How does that work itself out in, in practical day-to-day life? How does it show itself in your daily life? And probably the best place to test yourself in this, and the one that always brings me up short, is by looking at your prayer life. Because if we, if we are truly convinced that we depend on Jesus for everything, whether it's the food on the table or the job that we have or the roof over our heads or whatever provision it is, then our prayer life should reflect that kind of frequency and earnestness that cries out to him, that, that expresses that dependence on him, that says, God, I, I need you in this. God, you must provide for this. God, you, you have to work through this if, if this is going to happen. God, I, I thank you for everything that I have that you blessed me with. These disciples were about to go out and do what from a a humanly perspective was the hardest thing they had done in their lives. They were about to go out and become actual fishers of men. They were about to go out into a hostile world to proclaim the gospel of a risen Savior, not seen by all of the world around them. And they were about to call people to believe in Jesus Christ and repent of their sins. And then they were going to disciple those who became believers and help them to grow in the knowledge of Jesus Christ. And here is Jesus, in his kindness, giving them just one more object lesson to say, you can't do this on your own, guys. This isn't going to just happen because you've been hanging around with me. This is going to happen because you're depending on me. Because it is my strength, my work through you, my grace that you must rely on. Before we leave this section, a lot of ink over church history has been spent on verse 11 and the number of fish. It says that Peter brings them aboard and there are 153 fish. There's a lot of ancient church fathers who spent a lot of time trying to figure out what is the significance of 153? Is there some kind of symbolism to this? No less than Augustine, who came up with the idea that, well, if you take consecutive numbers and add them up, starting with one plus two plus three, who's the math major here can tell me what we get to 153? It's 17. So if you go and do that all the way to 17, it adds up to 153, and so 17. And you go, okay, so what? Augustine had an answer for that. Seven is a number of wholeness or perfection in Scripture. Ten is the number of commandments. And so you put seven and ten together, and you've got heaven or something. (laughs) Augustine has left us some wonderful writing. Um, I'm not sure if that was particularly helpful. I, I, I think... The reminder here is we don't need to do the mental gymnastics to sort of figure this out. The point is, it is a lot of fish. That's really, John has not, if there is anything in this number, John has not shown it to us. What John is saying is there were a lot of fish, and they were large fish, as we also see in this passage. It is, again, just a statement that magnifies the greatness of Jesus Christ, that these guys are putting their nets out, and just over on this side, suddenly Jesus loads their net with all this fish. All right, verse 12. 
Let's read on. Jesus said to them, come and have breakfast. Now none of the disciples dared ask him, who are you? They knew it was the Lord. Jesus came and took the bread and gave it to them, and so with the fish. This was now the third time that Jesus was revealed to the disciples after he was raised from the dead. When they had finished breakfast, Jesus said to Simon Peter, Simon, son of John, do you love me more than these? He said to him, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. Jesus said to him, feed my lambs. Jesus said to him a second time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? He said to him, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. Jesus said to him, tend my sheep. He said to him the third time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? Peter was grieved because he said to him the third time, do you love me? And he said to him, Lord, you know everything. You know that I love you. Jesus said to him, feed my sheep. Stop there. This scene takes place, verse 9 says, at, at daybreak around a charcoal fire that Jesus had prepared for them. The Greek word for this kind of fire shows up only two places in the New Testament, both in the Gospel of John. This may seem familiar to you because the last time was back in John 18, 18, and it was a fire that was in the court of the preceding high priest, Annas. And who was sitting around that fire on the night when Jesus was betrayed? Peter and a group of other people as they were awaiting while Jesus was on trial inside. And it was there around that fire, Peter warming himself, that the servant girl first said, hey, Aren't you one of his disciples? And Peter's response was, no, no, absolutely not. So it was there in that scene that Peter's denials of Jesus began. And that is the preface to what we're reading here in John chapter 21. On the night of the betrayal of Jesus, Peter three times is given this question of, did we see you with him? No, I don't even know him. And those denials begin around that fire in the courtyard. So here is Peter again in a scene that is at least somewhat reminiscent of that moment, now sitting before Jesus. 1 Corinthians 15.5 tells us that there was some meeting of Peter and Jesus that we get no details on. The Apostle Paul in 1 Corinthians 15.5 says that Jesus, after he was raised, appeared to Cephas and then to the twelve, Cephas being another name for Peter. And so it would appear, at least from Paul's counting there, that there was some perhaps private meeting between Jesus and perhaps some private repentance and then reconciliation that had already taken place. Um, that may have preceded this. But what happens here is crucial. What happens here in chapter 21 is absolutely necessary. Peter's three denials were done publicly. They were in the witness of other people, not the least of which was John. They were seen by other people. We know from church historians that one of the struggles in the early church was what, what do we do with people who profess faith in Christ and who then under persecution cave, who somehow deny Christ and then come back later and, and are weeping and apologetic and repenting. And, and the early church dealt with that, according to some of the historians. That was one of the challenges. How do you reinstate someone, or how do you bring them back in within the fold? And so it, it's really not a surprise that when you have here one of the apostles, one of the leaders in the early church, who under the threat of at least perceived threat of persecution, no one actually threatened Peter, but who in his own mind felt a threat, denied Jesus Christ three times. There needed to be a public 
restoration of him. There needed to be this, this account that we see in chapter 21 with his recommissioning being commensurate with his denials, his three denials. And that's what's happening as Jesus questions him. And so the second point here about our dependence on Jesus, we need to know the relentless pursuit of Jesus for his sheep. We need to know and understand how Jesus pursues his own. Peter was that disciple who had pledged unflagging allegiance. I will go with you wherever. I will not leave you. I will stand for you, Jesus. And he had failed in the most disastrous way possible. If you and I are, are looking at somebody to, to bring on to a leadership set up, and, and we're looking at a guy like this, who has been at times almost arrogant in his claims about Jesus, and who then simply destroys that with three clear denials of even knowing Jesus, you and I might be tempted to sort of write this guy off. So I, if loyalty counts for anything, Peter's blown it. I don't know how he gets a place in leadership. What kind of future could there be for someone who spoke with such boldness? And then when he's barely, he's not really even threatened. It's just, you're not one, are you? And he, he runs like a child from that and denies it. And yet, Jesus pursued Peter. Jesus is the one who, who carries out this restoration in front of the others so they can see. It is Jesus who did not let Peter go. It is Jesus who continues to have a future for Peter that he is continuing to place before him with not only the, the questions and the calls about love, but then the ministry of feed my sheep. You will continue to serve me, Peter. It is Jesus who is clearly restoring and recommissioning Peter. There's a number of, of insights on this passage, a number of sermons, and you may have heard some over the years, that, that focus in on the fact that there's two different Greek words for love that Jesus and Peter were using. And, and so the argument is sometimes made that Jesus was calling Peter to some higher form of sacrificial love, agapao, the, the Greek word. Peter was only settling in his response for phileo, which was kind of a friendship sort of love. Several reasons why I'm not convinced that that's a substantial point, not the least of which D.A. Carson points out, is those two words are used interchangeably throughout John's gospel. He tends to have a knack for interchanging words, even as he does here, feed, tend, lambs, sheep. It's all basically getting at the same point, but it's just a different way of saying it. And so I don't think we need to put too much stock in the fact that at the end, the record is, well, he says then phileo as if, okay, Jesus sort of condescends to, to Peter's sort of weaker form of love. No, it, it's clear, John tells us what grieves Peter is that this is the third time. In verse 17, Peter was grieved because he said to him the third time, do you love me? And he says, Lord, you know everything. You know that I love you. Because what does that mean? What, what is that reminding Peter of? When you go to the third time, this is a clear recollection of exactly what Peter had done. And if you remember the incident, you remember that at the third denial, he makes eye contact with Jesus, and the other Gospels, all three of them tell us, he wept bitterly and went away from there weeping. So this, is, this for Peter is a poignant, crucial moment in recommissioning him, but it is full of an awful memory of that time when he saw Jesus and realized he had just done exactly what Jesus said. 
and denied him three times and gone away weeping. But through it all, there is this glorious picture of Jesus who is not, not only not done with Peter, but has marvelous work ahead for Peter to do. And Jesus is pursuing Peter, lovingly pursuing one of his sheep to restore him to the fellowship. One commentator put it this way, Jesus probed Peter until he opened the wounded heart of this would-be follower. Off-the-cuff replies and well-meaning superficial responses to the risen Lord will not work in the call of Jesus to the life of discipleship. I think that's a helpful description of what, what we see here. And it is a marvelous lesson to you and I about our Savior's love for us. Not only pursuing us and bringing us to salvation, but then continuing to pursue us, even after we, having experienced his grace, still sin, still disobey him. And Jesus still loves us. When we experience conviction for sin, whether it comes through the reading of the word, whether it comes through some internal sense from the spirit, whether it comes from a brother or sister in Christ pointing something out in our lives. When, when we experience conviction of sin, that is the kindness of our Savior working through his spirit to call us back to obedience, to call us to repentance, to love us enough to not simply let us go, but to continue to pursue us. And so the same Savior, who even on the cross earnestly desired that his executioners would repent and find forgiveness. Remember, the Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. Even on the cross, his longing is that those who would taunt him and torture him would come to the place of being forgiven for their sins as they would turn from them and believe in him. That same Savior ever works in the souls of redeemed sinners to pursue us to call us to a lifestyle of self-examination and confession, that we, would, that we would see that if sin is the issue, okay, we have a Savior who dealt with sin. And so confess it and know the, the joy of forgiveness and restoration with him. Paul touches on this in 1 Timothy chapter 1 when he says, The saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance. Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners of whom I am foremost. But I received mercy for this reason, that in me, as the foremost, as the worst, Jesus Christ might display his perfect patience as an example to those who were to believe in him for eternal life. It's, it's not just patience on the front end when it comes to saving sinners. It is a patience that is ongoing throughout our walk. In Matthew 18, the, the picture that we see there of the, the shepherd who has 100 sheep and one of them strays, and so he leaves the 99 and goes off after the one. It's not talking about that the flock is not the world. The flock already belongs to the shepherd. One of those sheep who is straying is one of that flock. And he goes out after him. It is a, a straying sheep, one who has been part of the flock that Jesus loves enough to pursue. And in fact, he goes on from that picture of the flock to give us in Matthew 18 the description of what we are to do as a local church. When a believer, when somebody who professes faith in Christ carries on an unrepentant sin, we're not to go, oh well, See you later. We're to pursue. And Matthew 18 describes this, this persistent loving them enough to be like Christ, to call them back to repentance and to fellowship. Luke 15 offers the picture of the father rejoicing at the return of the prodigal. It is just this description of this relentless pursuit. Our glorious Savior died for sinners 
And in his unrelenting grace, he continues to pursue us even when we are doing things we know we shouldn't be doing and acting in ways that we shouldn't, even when we know better. And he's kind enough to continue to pursue us, to call us to repentance. Peter's restoration is a glorious lesson in that pursuit, and we should embrace it with thankful hearts. Second lesson, that is. The third one is we need Jesus' pattern for caring for one another. Pattern for ministry, if you will, that we get here. Just how much we need to, to know what Jesus does so that we can follow it. Two things I want you to see in verses 15 through 17. We've read them already, but this is that exchange. Simon, do you love me? Yes, Lord, I do. Feed my lambs. Two things that come out of that. When you see Jesus respond to Peter's answer on each one, feed my lambs, tend my sheep, and feed my sheep are Jesus' replies. What's the pronoun there? English grammar quiz. My, right? Whose sheep are we talking about? Jesus's, right? Jesus is making it abundantly clear to Peter as he is now going to set out into this foundational ministry that God will use to, to build his church, that those sheep belong to Jesus. No local church, no Christian ministry belongs to a pastor or an elder team or a Christian personality who calls it their ministry. The sheep belong to Jesus. They are his. I had a professor in seminary who we would sit and just talk about church stuff, and that was always one of the fun things about seminaries when you get your professor off the grammar and everything else and just talk about church stuff and pick his brain. And, and you would inevitably, one of the guys would say, well, over at my church, we do, and he would just stop us dead every time and go, it's not your church. Well, I'm just trying to use it as a figure of speech. And he would say, get that language out of your head. It is God's church. You are a servant in God's church. It is Christ's bought and purchased church. And so what we do in ministry is a stewardship that, that is entrusted to us by Jesus Christ. And we seek to glorify him by our love and our service and our care for the flock. That's why Paul, when he has the Ephesian elders' attention in Acts chapter 20, he says to them that you are to care for the church of God which he obtained with his blood. These are his sheep. This is his flock. You be good stewards of it because it belongs to him. And you treat it as if it does. And you respect it in that way. The body of Christ has been purchased by the death and resurrection of Christ. It is a stewardship to us. And so whether we're doing outreach in Lorton or children's ministry here or speaking over at the crossings or whatever it might be, we are serving on behalf of our glorious Savior. We are his ambassadors. We need him to do the, the, the marvelous miracle of bringing people to himself. We need him to, to grow people, and we can be thankful that he is somehow using us in our small ways to be a part of that, to be a part of his good work in their lives. The other thing I, I would just have you notice just in 15 through 17 is that the two terms that he uses sort of interchangeably, feed and tend. Feed, the Greek word, is to take to pasture. It is to take them to a spot where they can find food. Tend is the, sort of the all-encompassing word for shepherd. It largely, though, having the, the sense of, of protecting. And so the pattern Jesus lays down is, first of all, feed. Provide sustenance for them that will grow them. And so as you are ministering from 
brother to brother, brother sister to sister, as you are in the body of Christ and you are serving as parent to child, feed them the word. Give them sustenance that will make them strong in Christ, that will teach them who their God is. Don't give them fluff and junk food. Don't fill them up with stuff like so much that, that gets out into the world today that, that sort of brands Christianity as just sort of this feel-good message that tastes really good but isn't biblical to its core. Give them the word of God. Feed them on that which will grow them and sustain them. And then the second idea of tend is, is ultimately it's that picture of protecting them from wolves and coming alongside and mending them when they're hurt. It is just the, the day-to-day task of shepherding and protecting and caring. In other words, to get back to this theme of dependence, follow Christ. Do what Jesus did. Feed truth, tend with care and love and protect. Build into people's lives with God's word and care for them as Jesus did. Pursue those who are struggling the way Jesus pursued. Love others as Jesus did. Care for their souls as Jesus did. None of these things comes naturally to us. We're not servants by nature. We're servants by God's working in us and changing our hearts and causing us to be those kinds of servants of others who feed and tend. And so it, it speaks again to our need to prayerfully depend on Jesus and say, help me do this. Help me to, to, to feed and encourage this brother or sister in Christ with your word. Help me to guard them from the ideas of the world that, that, that seem to be inundating them. Verse 18. Truly, truly, I say to you, it's Jesus again speaking to Peter. Truly, truly, I say to you, when you were young, you used to dress yourself and walk wherever you wanted. But when you are old, you will stretch out your hands and another will dress you and carry you where you do not want to go. This he said to show by what kind of death Peter was to glorify God. And after saying this, Jesus said to him, follow me. Peter turned and saw the disciple whom Jesus loved following them. This is John, the one who also had leaned back against him during the supper and had said, Lord, who is it that is going to betray you? When Peter saw him, he said to Jesus, Lord, what about this man? Jesus said to him, if it is my will that he remain until I come, what is that to you? You follow me. So the saying spread abroad among the brothers that this disciple was not to die, yet Jesus did not say to him that he was not to die, but if it is my will that he remain until I come, what is that to you? This is the disciple who is bearing witness about these things and who has written these things, and we know that his testimony is true. Now there are also many other things that Jesus did. Were every one of them to be written, I suppose that the world itself could not contain the books that could be written. We need Jesus' provision in everything. Secondly, we need to know his relentless pursuit of his sheep. We need to follow his pattern. The last one is we desperately need perseverance for a lifetime of discipleship that only Jesus Christ can give us. We need perseverance from Jesus for the lifetime of discipleship that's ahead of us. From all indications, John's gospel is the last of the four. Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, chronologically, is probably the last written. It's probably the latest one. John is older when he writes it. In fact, it probably comes later in the first century. Peter has probably already been put to death. Church history tells us under Nero that he was crucified. And so on a very practical level, one of the things that John is addressing here is his own future and this sort of rumor that had come up because of what Jesus had said to Peter of, 
hey, listen, if, if I let this guy stay here on earth alive until I return, what difference does that make to you? And, and so John sees fit to address that, probably to dispel any bad, wrong ideas that would crop up if John died. John's seeing himself getting older, and he knows he's getting closer to that point. And the last thing he wants is for him to die, and people say, well, wait a minute. Jesus was supposed to return before John died. And so John is saying, no, Jesus said that as a potential, not as a promise. He said, what if that happens, not this is going to happen. And the point in Jesus saying it was not for John's benefit. It was for Peter's. It was John's way of saying to Peter, don't worry about it. You're caring about someone else here. Don't worry. I, I could keep him here forever. You follow me, Peter. Focus on, on, on the message here. Just do what you're told. Don't be distracted by something else. Jesus had already warned Peter, it says here, of his own martyrdom. There would come a day, and we know from the method of, of crucifixion, that often the, the one who was to be crucified would be strapped to the crossbar, stripped and led to where they would be taken to be executed. And that seems to be what Jesus is describing here that he would be bound to this crossbar, his hands would be stretched out, he would be taken and led off to the place where he would be crucified. D.A. Carson writes, it is remarkable that Peter lived and served three decades with this prediction hanging over him. This is the kind of thing where, you know, sometimes we think we want to know the future, and this is one of those where you wonder, would I really want to know this? Would I really want to hear this one? And Peter, such faithful service over, over the, the, the lifetime in spite of this. If you go back to John chapter 1 and think about Jesus calling, not only in John 1, but in the other Gospels, when Jesus calls the disciples, when they're fishing, when they're involved in their trade, what does Jesus often say to them? Follow me. Follow me. I will make you fishers of men. It is one thing on the front end of that story. When Jesus comes, who is who's new on the scene, whose teaching is beginning to get attention, who possibly could be the Messiah, who crowds are starting to flock around, and when he comes along and says, follow me, man, that is an adventure. I am going to follow this one who could be the Messiah, and I'm, gonna, I'm being called into the inner circle of this one. It's one thing on the front end to hear, follow me, and, and drop everything and say, okay, I'll follow you. It's a whole other thing on the other end of that when Jesus Christ says, and here's what's going to happen to you. You're one day going to die you're going to die in a way that you will have no control over, that others will do to you, and you will suffer in that way. Follow me. In that moment, if that doesn't take utter dependence on Jesus to say, okay, I'll follow you. Peter's first reaction is, well, what about this guy? What about John over here? And even then, Jesus says, don't worry about it. And again, there in the end of verse 22, you follow me. The call to follow Jesus Christ comes with a cost. Just because we live in the, the relative ease and comfort of American Christianity, we should not forget that Jesus Christ repeatedly said, count the cost if you're going to follow me. You will lose things because of following me. You will lose people. You will lose family. You will lose things that the world treasures if you follow me. And so count that cost. We should not be surprised by suffering. And in fact, 
Scripture tells us repeatedly we should expect it. And if, in fact, we suffer for embracing Jesus Christ, we should consider that a joy as part of our worship because we were able to suffer in his place. Peter writes about that in his letter, 1 Peter, profound exhortations on suffering in 1 Peter 4. Beloved, don't be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you as though something strange were happening to you, but rejoice insofar as you share Christ's sufferings, that you may also rejoice and be glad when his glory is revealed. If you are insulted for the name of Christ, you are blessed because the spirit of glory and of God rests upon you. Let none of you suffer as a murderer or thief or an evildoer or a meddler. Yet if anyone suffers as a Christian, let him not be ashamed, but let him glorify God in that name. If we're honest, the call to suffering is not the most appealing of calls. It, it, frankly, we, we think of tragedy and, and hardship were it not for the fact that Jesus Christ promised, I will be with you always even unto the end of the age, regardless of what you walk through, I will not leave you or forsake you. I will be with you until the moment you pass into glory and stand in my presence. And that is, that is our hope. That is the, it is the gracious work of his spirit within us that enables us to persevere so that even when we are suffering for following after Jesus Christ, even when a family member or, or some other person in our life mocks or insults because of what we believe, we are able to rest in Christ. My grace is sufficient for you. Jesus said it to the disciples at the end of John 16, I have said these things to you that in me you may have peace. In the world you will have tribulation. Take heart. I've overcome the world. May God grant us the humility to depend on him not only in everything, but in perseverance, that we would depend on him to cause us to persevere. We don't know what tomorrow will bring. We don't know what that suffering will be, but we know whom we have believed in, and we can rest in him and know that he will cause us to persevere in that day. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you for your precious word. We thank you for the gospel of John, for your work by your spirit, working with the apostle John, to bring about this book that has brought us so intimately to see the life of Christ, to hear his teaching, to see his signs, to see his love for his own as he loved them to the uttermost. Thank you for showing us these things through your word. Keep us grounded in your word that we would continue to come back to seeing Jesus Christ as your word has revealed him, that we would believe in Jesus Christ for who he is that we would believe that he is the Savior. I pray that if there is anyone here this morning not trusting in Jesus Christ as Savior, that today would be the day when you would cause them to embrace Jesus as the Son of God who gave his life as a ransom for sinners, as the one who died to take the penalty that we deserve. And Father, for we who are trusting in Christ, help us this week to be dependent when we are drawn toward the self-sufficient, independent ways of the world remind us again of how much we need the strength, the grace, the mercy, the peace of the one who has overcome the world, Jesus Christ, in whose name we pray. Amen.